Part Four, Sections One, Two, and Three of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shi Pingling. The Song of the Lark by Willa Cyber Cather. Part Four, Sections One, Two, and Three. Section One. The San Francisco mountain lies in northern Arizona, above Flagstaff, and its blue slopes and snowy summit entice the eye for a hundred miles across the desert. About its base lie the pine forests of the Navajos, where the great red-trunked trees lift out their peaceful centuries in that sparkling air. The pinyons and scrub begin only where the forest ends, where the country breaks into open stony clearings and the surface of the earth cracks into deep canyons. The great pines stand at a considerable distance from each other. Each tree grows alone, murmurs alone, thinks alone. They do not intrude upon each other. The Navajos are not much in the habit of giving or of asking help. Their language is not a communicative one, and they never attempt an interchange of personality in speech. Over their forests there is the same inexorable reserve. Each tree has its exalted power to bear. That was the first thing Thea Kronborg felt about the forest, as she drove through it one May morning in Henry Biltmer's Democrat wagon and it was the first great forest she had ever seen. She had got off the train at Flagstaff that morning, rolled off into the high, chill air when all the pines on the mountain were fired by sunrise, so that she seemed to fall from sleep directly into the forest. Old Biltmer followed a faint wagon trail which ran southeast, and which, as they traveled, continually dipped lower, falling away from the high plateau on the slope of which Flagstaff sits. The white peak of the mountain, the snow gorges above the timber, now disappeared from time to time as the road dropped and dropped, and the forest closed behind the wagon. More than the mountain disappeared as the forest closed thus, Thea seemed to be taking very little through the wood with her. The personality of which she was so tired seemed to let go of her. The high sparkling air drank it up like blotting paper. It was lost in the thrilling blue of the new sky and the song of the thin wind in the pinions. The old fretted lines which marked one off, which defined her, made her Thea Kronborg, Bowers's accompanists, a soprano with a faulty middle voice, were all erased. So far, she had failed. Her two years in Chicago had not resulted in anything. She had failed with Hassani, and she had made no great progress with her voice. She had come to believe that whatever Bowers had taught her was of secondary importance and that in the essential things she had made no advance. Her student life closed behind her, like the forest, and she doubted whether she could go back to it if she tried. 
Probably she would teach music in little country towns all her life. Failure was not so tragic as she would have supposed. She was tired enough not to care. She was getting back to the earliest sources of gladness that she could remember. She had loved the sun and the brilliant solitudes of sand and sun, long before these other things had come along to fasten themselves upon her and torment her. That night, when she clambered into her big German feather bed, she felt completely released from the enslaving desire to get on in the world. Darkness had once again the sweet wonder that it had in childhood. Section 2 Thea's life at the Ottenburg ranch was simple and full of light, like the days themselves. She awoke every morning when the first fierce shafts of sunlight darted through the curtainless windows of her room at the range house. After breakfast, she took her lunch basket and went down to the canyon. Usually, she did not return until sunset. Panther Canyon was like a thousand others, one of those abrupt fissures with which the earth in the southwest is riddled, so abrupt that you might walk over the edge of any one of them on a dark night and never know what had happened to you. This canyon, headed on the Ottenburg Ranch, about a mile from the range house, and it was accessible only at its head. The canyon walls the first two hundred feet below the surface were perpendicular cliffs striped with even running strata of rock from there on to the bottom the sides were less abrupt were shelving and lightly fringed with pinions and dwarf cedars the effect was that of a gentler canyon within a wilder one the dead city lay at the point where the perpendicular outer wall ceased and the V-shaped inner gorge began. There, a stratum of rock, softer than those above, had been hollowed out by the action of time until it was like a deep groove running along the sides of the canyon. In this hollow, like a great fold in the rock, the ancient people had built their houses of yellowish stone and mortar, the overhanging cliff above made a roof two hundred feet thick. The hard stratum below was an everlasting floor. The houses stood alone in a row, like the buildings in a city block, or like a barracks. In both walls of the canyon, the same streak of soft rock had been washed out, and a long horizontal groove had been built up with houses. The dead city had thus two streets, one set in either cliff, facing each other across the ravine, with a river of blue air between them. The canyon twisted and wound like a snake, and these two streets went on for four miles or more, interrupted by the abrupt turnings of the gorge, but beginning again within each turn. The canyon had a dozen of these false endings near its head. Beyond, the windings were larger and less perceptible, and it went on for a hundred miles, too narrow, precipitous, and terrible for men to follow it. The cliff-dwellers liked wide canyons, where the great cliffs caught the sun. 
panther canyon had been deserted for hundreds of years when the first spanish missionaries came into arizona but the masonry of the houses was still wonderfully firm had crumbled only where a landslide or a rolling boulder had torn it all the houses in the canyon were clean with the cleanness of sun-baked wind-swept places and they all smelled of the tough little cedars that twisted themselves into the very doorways one of these rock rooms thea took for her own fred had told her how to make it comfortable the day after she came old henry brought over on one of the pack ponies a roll of navajo blankets that belonged to fred and thea lined her cave with them the room was not more than eight by ten feet and she could touch the stone roof with her fingertips this was her old idea a nest in a high cliff full of sun all morning long the sun beat upon her cliff while the ruins on the opposite side of the canyon were in shadow in the afternoon when she had the shade of two hundred feet of rock wall the ruins on the other side of the gulf stood out in the blazing sunlight before her door ran the narrow winding path that had been the street of the ancient people the yucca and niggerhead cactus grew everywhere from her doorstep she looked out on the ochre-colored slope that ran down several hundred feet to the stream and this hot rock was sparsely grown with dwarf trees their colors were so pale that the shadows of the little trees on the rock stood out sharper than the trees themselves when thea first came the chokecherry bushes were in blossom and the scent of them was almost sickeningly sweet after a shower at the very bottom of the canyon along the stream there was a thread of bright flickering golden-green cottonwood seedlings they made a living chattering screen behind which she took her bath every morning thea went down to the stream by the indian water trail she had found a bathing pool with a sand bottom where the creek was dammed by fallen trees the climb back was long and steep and when she reached her little house in the cliff she always felt fresh delight in its comfort and inaccessibility by the time she got there the woolly red and gray blankets were saturated with sunlight and she sometimes fell asleep as soon as she stretched her body on their warm surfaces she used to wonder at her own inactivity she could lie there hour after hour in the sun and listen to the strident whir of the big locusts and to the light ironical laughter of the quaking asps all her life she had been hurrying and sputtering as if she had been born behind time and had been trying to catch up now she reflected as she drew herself out long upon the rocks it was as if she were waiting for something to catch up with her she had got to a place where she was out of the stream of meaningless activity and undirected effort here she could lie for half a day undistracted holding pleasant and incomplete conceptions in her mind almost in her hands they were scarcely clear enough to be called ideas 
they had something to do with fragrance and color and sound but almost nothing to do with words she was singing very little now but a song would go through her head all morning as the spring keeps welling up and it was like a pleasant sensation indefinitely prolonged it was much more like a sensation than like an idea or an act of remembering music had never come to her in that sensuous form before it had always been a thing to be struggled with had always brought anxiety and exaltation and chagrin never content in indolence thea began to wonder whether people could not utterly lose the power to work as they can lose their voice or their memory she had always been a little drudge hurrying from one task to another as if it mattered and now her power to think seemed converted into a power of sustained sensation she could become a mere receptacle for heat or become a color like the bright lizards that darted about on the hot stones outside her door or she could become a continuous repetition of sound like the cicadas section three the faculty of observation was never highly developed in thea kronborg a great deal escaped her eye as she passed through the world but the things which were for her she saw she experienced them physically and remembered them as if they had once been a part of herself the roses she used to see in the florists shops in chicago were merely roses but when she thought of the moonflowers that grew over mrs telemontes door it was as if she had been that vine and had opened up in white flowers every night there were memories of light on the sand hills of masses of prickly pear blossoms she had found in the desert in early childhood of the late afternoon sun pouring through the grape leaves in the mint bed in mrs kohler's garden which she would never lose these recollections were a part of her mind and personality in chicago she had got almost nothing that went into her subconscious self and took root there but here in panther canyon there were again things which seemed destined for her panther canyon was the home of innumerable swallows they built nests in the wall far above the hollow groove in which thea's own rock chamber lay they seldom ventured above the rim of the canyon to the flat wind-swept tableland their world was the blue air river between the canyon walls in that blue gulf the arrow-shaped birds swam all day long with only an occasional movement of the wings the only sad thing about them was their timidity the way in which they lived their lives between the echoing cliffs and never dared to rise out of the shadow of the canyon walls as they swam past her door thea often felt how easy it would be to dream one's life out in some cleft in the world from the ancient dwelling there came always a dignified unobtrusive sadness now stronger now fainter like the aromatic smell which the dwarf cedars gave out in the sun but always present a part of the air one breathed at night when thea dreamed about the canyon 
or in the early morning when she hurried toward it anticipating it her conception of it was of yellow rocks baking in the sunlight the swallows the cedar smell and that peculiar sadness a voice out of the past not very loud that went on saying a few simple things to the solitude eternally standing up in her lodge thea could with her thumbnail dislodge flakes of carbon from the rock roof the cooking smoke of the ancient people they were that near a timid nest-building folk like the swallows how often thea remembered ray kennedy's moralizing about the cliff cities he used to say that he never felt the hardness of the human struggle or the sadness of history as he felt it among those ruins he used to say too that it made one feel an obligation to do one's best on the first day that thea climbed the water trail she began to have intuitions about the women who had worn the path and who had spent so great a part of their lives going up and down it she found herself trying to walk as they must have walked with a feeling in her feet and knees and loins which she had never known before which must have come up to her out of the accustomed dust of that rocky trail she could feel the weight of an indian baby hanging to her back as she climbed the empty houses among which she wandered in the afternoon the blanketed one in which she lay all morning were haunted by certain fears and desires feeling about warmth and cold and water and physical strength it seemed to thea that a certain understanding of those old people came up to her out of the rock shelf on which she lay that certain feelings were transmitted to her suggestions that were simple insistent and monotonous like the beating of indian drums they were not expressible in words but seemed rather to translate themselves into attitudes of body into degrees of muscular tension or relaxation the naked strength of youth sharp as the sun shafts the crouching timorousness of age the sullenness of women who waited for their captors at the first turning of the canyon there was a half-ruined tower of yellow masonry a watch-tower upon which the young men used to entice eagles and snare them with nets sometimes for a whole morning thea could see the coppery breasts and shoulders of an indian youth there against the sky see him throw the net and watch the struggle with the eagle o henry biltmer at the ranch had been a great deal among the pueblo indians who are the descendants of the cliff dwellers after supper he used to sit and smoke his pipe by the kitchen stove and talk to thea about them he had never found any one before who was interested in his ruins every sunday the old man prowled about in the canyon and he had come to know a good deal more about it than he could account for he had gathered up a whole chestful of cliff-dweller relics which he meant to take back to germany with him some day he taught thea how to find things among the ruins grinding stones and drills and needles made of turkey bones there were fragments of pottery everywhere 
old henry explained to her that the ancient people had developed masonry and pottery far beyond any other crafts after they had made houses for themselves the next thing was to house the precious water he explained to her how all their customs and ceremonies and their religion went back to water the man provided the food but water was the care of the women the stupid women carried water for most of their lives the cleverer ones made the vessels to hold it their pottery was their most direct appeal to water the envelope and sheath of the precious element itself the strongest indian need was expressed in those graceful jars fashioned slowly by hand without the aid of a wheel when thea took a bath at the bottom of the canyon in a sunny pool behind a screen of cottonwoods she sometimes felt as if the water must have sovereign qualities from having been the object of so much service and desire that stream was the only living thing left of the drama that had been played out in the canyon centuries ago in the rapid restless heart of it flowing swifter than the rest there was a continuity of life that reached back into the old time the glittering thread of current had a kind of lightly worn loosely knit personality graceful and laughing thea's bath came to have a ceremonial gravity the atmosphere of the canyon was ritualistic one morning as she was standing upright in the pool splashing water between her shoulder-blades with a big sponge something flashed through her mind that made her draw herself up and stand still until the water had quite dried upon her flushed skin the stream and the broken pottery what was any art but an effort to make a sheath a mode in which to imprison for a moment the shining elusive element which is life itself life hurrying past us and running away too strong to stop too sweet to lose the indian women had held it in their jars in the sculpture she had seen in the art institute it had been caught in a flash of arrested motion in singing one made a vessel of one's throat and nostrils and held it on one's breath caught the stream in a scale of natural intervals end of part four Sections 1, 2, and 3. Recording by Shi Pingling.